Exodus. It's good to see everyone here this Palm Sunday morning as we begin in earnest to look forward to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, and as you're making your way there in your Bible, I, I want to make you aware of a couple of resources that we have. These, as you go out the double doors here, just around the corner to the right um, are these resources here. Um, and uh, obviously we baptized Kayla last week. We've got people joining the church this week and Lord willing next week. And um, and for sometimes I just assume that people know why we do these things and what those things are for. But unless I touch on it in a sermon, you don't necessarily always know uh, why we do the things that we do around here. And I, I do my best to try to explain them. But we've got a couple little resources that I have found personally extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, the little blue one is called Why Should I Be Baptized? Uh, and the green one is called Why Should I Join a Church? And I think by the title, it's probably pretty clear what these books are about. Why should I be baptized? Why should I join a church? If you have a question about those things, if you know someone who has a question about those things, if you just would like to understand more clearly why we believe what we believe about these things, these little booklets are really helpful uh, resources, uh, and they're free to you. They're we pay a few dollars uh, per, per booklet, but uh, if you'd like one, fee- feel free to grab one. Uh, if you've got someone in mind that you'd like to hand one off to, you're sure welcome to do that. Um, I'm a very, very, very slow reader. Um, it would take me 30 minutes or so to sit down and read the entire book. Like that's, so that's what you're talking about, uh, the, about 30 minutes or so to read through the whole thing. It's laid out very, very simply. It's not a deep theological treatise, but it is a, faith, a biblically faithful explanation and answer to those two questions. And I'd gotten those in this week and just wanted to make you aware of them. Okay, so if you go out to the bookstore, a lot, or the little bookshelf, bookstore, um, the bookshelf, uh, and see uh, books on it, uh, a lot of those, you know, we have uh, a price tag on them. These are no price tag because uh, if, if you'd like one, we'd, we'd sure love for you to take one with you, okay? Exodus chapter 27, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. You shall make the altar of acacia wood. Surprise, surprise. Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. Now that might surprise us a little bit because everything else has been overlaid with gold. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. These are the tools that you use when you're using the altar. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. Now theologians aren't exactly, exactly, exactly agreed on was this like a grill inside the the altar? Was it like uh, was it like venting around the bottom of the altar to allow oxygen to flow in from outside of it? Was it some kind of a grating actually on the outside of the altar for the priest to gain access to to the altar? It's a little unclear as to exactly what this and the uh, uh, the this next ledge thing that it's talking about here exactly how this looked. Um, We just have to kind of use our our imagination here a little bit. Verse 5, And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. 
one of the reasons it's made hollow with boards is just this is by far the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle is a portable structure, right? And so we, it just you got to have a way. If this thing is solid bronze, nobody's moving it, right? So they got to have a way to get this thing around. Verse nine: You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. I don't know if that's fillet or fillet. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long, and its pillars twenty and their base is 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with the needlework. Verse 16 is, is describing the, uh, the entranceway into, into the courtyard of the tabernacle of God. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. God, please help us again as we look into a passage of Scripture that contains familiar information to us, but relatively boring information to us. God, I pray that we would come to understand it in a way that would keep it from ever being boring again. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, in the mail, I received a letter from our newly appointed judge, Kim Allen. And inside that envelope was not a personal note from Judge Allen, but a, you got one too? A summons to court, right? Jury duty. I've been selected for jury duty. Oh, great. Okay. Actually, I'm, the, I am, I'm that weird guy who like thinks, ooh, maybe I'll get some really cool case and I'll be. Does anyone else actually like get excited about a summons to jury duty? Okay. There's a, very, okay. I, okay. There's more than maybe I thought. <laughs> And the rest of you feel like Gary Frost. Like, no, ain't nobody got time for that. I'm not, uh, I have no interest whatsoever. Well, when you go, when you do actually, I've been summoned once, and I actually was able to serve on a, on a jury. Um, and uh, when you go there, you stand before a judge, right? There's a judge who's going to hear a case, and uh, I have no idea what, what the case is, and I have no idea if I'll even be selected. But when you stand before a judge, the judge hears from the two different sides, and then the judge will render a verdict, will render uh, a judgment on what it hears, uh, what, what he or she hears. And now imagine with me that there was a judge, and this judge became known for how kind and forgiving and generous that he or she was to the criminals. 
right? And right before the, the pronouncement is made by the judge, you know, the judge says, you know, I've spent some time talking with this individual personally. And they're really sorry for what they did. And they said, pretty please. And they asked if I would forgive them. And, you know, after talking with them, I really believe them to be sincere. And I'm a very kind and generous judge. And so, yes, though they are guilty of bank robbery, I'm going to let them go this time. Though they are guilty of murder, ah, I really don't think they're going to do it again. I'm going to let them go. And this judge became known for, for someone who, who just didn't, didn't hand down the appropriate penalty for the transgression. Now, that judge would quickly earn a reputation, but they would quickly earn a very bad reputation, right? Like, it's, it's not okay. It's not okay for the judge to just waive the penalty that's due for the, the, uh, the infraction, right? Are we in agreement? Like, that's, that's, not, that's not a judge being nice. That's not a judge being kind. That's not them being generous. That's not them being forgiving. That's them doing the wrong thing, right? Because the punishment needs to fit the crime. If there's a crime that's committed, there's a penalty that needs to be made. There's a, there's a payment that needs to be made for the crime that's committed. That's not okay for a judge to be that way. We'd never say that's okay. Someone needs to pay. And the main point this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. Someone pays for every sin committed. Someone pays for every single sin committed. We're going to look at this bronze altar in its courtyard here together this morning, and we're going to see clearly from what's described here in Exodus chapter 27, and what we're going to see as we march our way forward, you know, we're, you, you know we're going to end up talking about Jesus, right? Yeah, okay. So just... I hate to, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Jesus before this morning is over. Um, but the altar, this bronze altar, is, is a place where we see the beauty of King Jesus as clearly as you will see it anywhere in the pages of Scripture. This morning we're going to look at an altar for sacrifice. Then point number two, second observation we're going to make is we're going to look at a lamb for sacrifice. And then number three, we will see a life for sacrifice. So, an altar for sacrifice, a lamb for sacrifice, and a life for sacrifice. And I wish, I, I wish there was an L word for altar, but I, I had to just use the actual word altar. This altar that we're going to look at in verses 1 through 8 is set within a court that the Bible describes in verses 9 through 18. Now again, let me remind us, let's not forget, let's not get so focused in on just these verses that we forget what's happening. God has delivered his people to dwell with them on his, their way to dwell with him, right? Um, they've been delivered out of the land of Egypt by Moses and God has delivered them and now uh, his spirit is dwelling with them in the wilderness as they're on their way to the promised land to dwell with God. And God has given them these instructions and now God is giving them this place inside of their encampment where he's going to dwell. 
the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and they're doing so, they're, they're literally living in tents. And we've talked about that in weeks past about how inconvenient it is to live in a fabric structure in the middle of the desert. And yet that's where they find themselves. But God figures out a way, or he doesn't figure out a way, he establishes a way where he's going to dwell with his people. And he says, Moses, I'm going to give you instructions. Go build for me a tabernacle. And that tabernacle with its holiest place and the holy place is set within uh, a courtyard. This, this courtyard that's described in verses 9 through 18, um, or yeah, through 9 through 18, is 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. Okay, so you're like, I don't remember how, how, how what, would that, what would that look like? Remember we talked about the tabernacle would easily fit within this room? It would, be, it would be about all the way across the back row and then five rows forward, and then it would be about 15 feet tall. Well, the courtyard is significantly bigger. The courtyard, you could get three tennis courts in the courtyard. Okay, So this is a much bigger space. There's a lot going on in this courtyard. This courtyard uh, is, is described with this, with this beautiful um, fabric fence, basically, around it. We would think of it in terms of a fence. And that, that primary opening there is this beautiful uh, fine twined uh, linen, the purple and scarlet um, uh, linen that's that is its uh, its entrance into the into the courtyard. And brothers and sisters, I, I could spend a lot of time here. I'm just going to go just mention it briefly. Even even the courtyard reminds us that God has a way to get to Him. Right? The tabernacle wasn't just open. And just sitting there in the middle of the encampment of the Israelites, there was a courtyard around, around it, and there was one way into the courtyard. When God establishes a way to approach him, he establishes one way. Of course, I'm referring to, to Jesus Christ as that one way. This, this courtyard around the tabernacle was a busy place. Priests coming and going all day. The people of Israel coming and going all day, animals being brought in and brought out all day. You know the, the picture that I've showed a few times uh, on the screen on Sunday mornings when we're talking about the tabernacle, and it shows you know the the, or the tabernacle in the courtyard, and there's like one priest in the you know ch- kind of just showing you the scale of the size. Those images don't do a service when it comes to helping us understand like the hustle and bustle of the tabernacle and the courtyard of the tabernacle. This was a really busy place with one entrance coming in and out. And the Bible goes on to describe both for the tabernacle and the temple. As we read in the Psalms how people felt about going to the temple, how they felt about going to the tabernacle, the people of Israel were actually excited that God dwelled in their midst and that they had a place to go to to interact with him and 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 to... Uh, and to be with him. And Psalm, there are several Psalms here. I'm just going to read a couple real quick. My soul yearns, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. This is referring to the, the courtyard of the tabernacle, the courtyard of the temple. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. David says in Psalm 85, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The people of Israel loved 
this tabernacle. They loved this courtyard. They loved what it represented. They loved knowing that they could go and gain access to the presence of God. Philip Graham Ryken, whose commentary has been my, been my favorite one of, of all the ones I've used uh, studying the book of Exodus, he says this, we should have the same feelings of exuberance when we go to worship with God's people. Drawing near to God is a blessing to the soul. Our hearts cry out for him And when we get close to God in worship, he fills us with good things. This is why it is better to be in church, even just standing in the doorway, than anywhere else in the world. I don't feel that way most Sundays. I don't. I like going to church. I like you. I like preaching. I want God to do a work in me where I realize that when we gather together as God's people, there is something unique that God does. God isn't here. He's not more present right now than he is when I'm by myself on a Tuesday morning. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there, there are means of grace. There are ways that I learn about God. Matt has reiterated this over and over in his Sunday school class. There are ways that I can know God better and love God more because God has put me in community with you than I can by myself. And the people of God love gathering with the other people of God and being in the courts of the Lord together. And so the people of God had this tabernacle with this courtyard around it. And when you walked in, when you walked in, you walked in, there's only one place to, to come in and go out. When you walked in, there was, there was something, you saw something first. There was, there was one thing that you saw that uh, because of the layout of this courtyard, you, you, there was no getting around it, there was no missing it, there was no walking past it without realizing it was there. There was a flaming altar. Now again, uh, whatever we've seen in television, whatever we've thought of in movies, whatever, we've, whatever uh, images we've seen in our study Bible, some of you have a study Bible even in front of you that have you know, the, the imagery of the, uh, of the courtyard and the tabernacle. Uh, several of my Bibles have that as well. Those are helpful. Those are good. But brothers and sisters, let's stop for a minute and realize that this was, this was not a neat, clean, quiet, pristine place. There was a big flaming fire. There was smoke billowing up out of it. There was heat. There were bleeding animals. There were knives being wielded. There were throats being cut. There was bleeding of animals and blood being caught by animals. It was hot on hot days and cold on cold days. There was dust flying around. There were flies flying around. There were people talking. There were people praying. There were people laughing. This was a noisy and busy place filled with life and filled with death. We live in very clean, sterile environments, right? Like we, we get our meat and it comes in a plastic bag frozen at the grocery store, right? Like we don't have anything to do with the killing of animals. Well, some of us do. On a good day, we have something to do with the killing of animals. I'm, I'm. So the images in our study Bibles are only min- minimally helpful 
as they walk in, they would see this flaming fire, this bronze altar that's laid out here for us in verses 1 through 8. And, and here we come to one of the, there's only two, I keep calling them pieces of furniture, I don't know better what to call them. We come to one of the two pieces of furniture that are here in this outer courtyard outside of the, the tabernacle itself. We come to this bronze altar, or maybe, maybe you've heard it called the brazen altar. It's approximately seven and a half feet square and about four feet tall, made of acacia wood overlaid in bronze, which is the first thing that we've heard of not being overlaid in gold. Well, again, bronze is much more heat resistant. This thing has a fire going in it all the time. Uh, and this thing wasn't right there in the inner presence of, uh, next to the Lord. This was further out. And so this bronze altar has a fire going in it all the time. It's got some kind of grating that allowed for holding the sacrifices or airflow. That's what this grating or mesh thing is, is, is describing. And, and there were horns on each corner, right? Did you notice that as we read through that it described these four horns, one on each corner of this altar? And scholars have suggested all sorts of things that they may have stood for. Maybe they stood for the strength of God. The, the, uh, it, maybe it stood for the horns of the horned animals that were killed there. Maybe it was merely functional, right? You could, you could tie, you had something to tie animals up to while you were slaughtering other animals. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah, who fears Solomon, he runs and takes hold of the horns as a, a place for safety. So maybe, maybe God intended for them to understand something about forgiveness and atonement and safety there um, at, at the altar, uh, on, on the horns of the altar. But for whatever reason, they, we know that they were important. We know that they were important because the priest actually sprinkled blood on this altar. So remember, I mean, remember this. This is very likely a very fragrant, very busy, very messy place. The, the, the priests who were busy sacrificing these animals, they were not neat and clean in their priestly garments, right? We, when we think of religious holy men in the Bible, right, we think we picture them perfectly pristine in there and like no these guys imagine a butcher but messier it's important for us to to get some of the some of the blood imagery in our minds a little bit here that it's a significant part of what we're going to talk about here together this morning and encountering the altar when the people of Israel would have come into that courtyard encountering the altar as the very first thing was this striking awareness there was this obvious reminder that like whoa, wait a second, we walk in, and in order to get to the presence of God, there's this big thing consuming sacrifices. There are animals being killed and killed and killed and killed. And I, I don't have stats here in front of me. I, I'm thinking of this even as I'm preaching right now. Maybe I can come up with this before, uh, before next week. But um, I mean, th this, there are I'm sure there are estimates on the numbers of animals that are being killed, but there, I mean, this would have to be hundreds, if not thousands, of animals over the course of a week, probably hundreds of animals a day that are being sacrificed here. And as the people of Israel walk into the temple, uh, excuse me, walk into the tabernacle courtyard, they realize we've got a problem here. This is, this is a weird thing for us to walk into. Sin must be paid for. Remember I said the main point this morning is this. Someone pays for every sin committed. And the people of Israel understand that these animals are being brought to this altar for the purpose of sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 29, just a couple chapters over, let me read a few verses. Exodus 29 verses 36 and following. 
Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with the flour, a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering, and it's drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, and food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generation at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. So apart from the rest of the uh, uh, sacrifices that are being offered, there's just this standing, at le- I mean, there's a, an offering in the morning, there's an offering in the evening, there are animals being killed. And the book of Leviticus lays out for us at least five primary types of sacrifices for this altar. Now, the, these, these sacrifices I'm going to spend five minutes on, and, and it, I mean, this, this could earn its own sermon series, so I'm not going in depth here. But first of all, there was the burnt offering. And if you wanted to flip over your Bible headlines, these chapters in Leviticus with the names of these altars. And so Leviticus chapter 1, the, the headline there will read, Burnt Offering. This was a general sacrifice for sin. And in this, in this sacrifice, the animal would be killed. And, and remember that they don't have the same methods of killing animals that we have, right? Like they don't have whatever a feedlot uses, the bolt thing to the head, or they don't, uh, you know, they don't, um, there's not like lethal injection or something. There's not this safe, pristine way. There is a knife to the throat. And the animal dies slowly but the animal goes from living to go to 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 dead in the hands of the the offerer of the sacrifice and of the priests and and blood gets on on you it gets on you it gets on the priest it gets on the ground it gets in the bowl there's there's blood running around and the total animal the total animal is put up on the altar and burned the whole thing all of it this very valuable resource, this animal that could give you milk or cheese or meat, is just completely consumed. Leviticus 2 tells us about a grain offering. This one seems a little bit unusual to us, a thanksgiving offering, part of the harvest that was being offered. This one's not a blood offering, but it is a total kind of, uh, a very valuable thing is being given to God and thanks for God's provision to the people of Israel. Leviticus chapter 3 mentions a fellowship offering, or many of us know it as a peace offering. And with this offering, part of the animal is offered to God, but, but you as the offerer get to keep part of this offering. And it, it represents the fellowship that we have with God, right? God gets part of this sacrifice, and I get part of this sacrifice. And if, if I come to your house, and you eat, and I eat, and we share a meal together, then there's a, there's a fellowship that we're experiencing there. And this offering was to, to, uh, to demonstrate the, the fellowship between, between God and his people. Leviticus chapter 4 refers to a sin offering, and Leviticus chapter 5 refers to a guilt offering. And both of these can be offered as for individual sins or for group sins, and, and it can be for intentional sins or, <coughs> excuse me, unintentional sins. But there's these, these various ways in which animals are being brought and animals are being killed, and part of it is being offered up to the Lord on this grill, or all of it's being offered up to the Lord on this grill. I don't mean to be uh, trite or, or um, silly, but some of this probably actually does smell good, right? I mean, grilled meat is a, a good thing, right? Like, I mean, 
many of us uh, on a regular basis are grilling meat. You, just, you drive at the right time when the wind's out of the right direction, you can smell the XIT Steakhouse. Now, if the wind's just slightly off, then I get all kind of other unpleasant smells, but um, such is life around here, right? These sacrifices, though, these sacrifices, there are a couple things about these sacrifices. They are valuable, right? The people, the people of God aren't just looking around the house and going, what's something that we can burn for God, right? Like we have to go do that burn thing, right, where we have to throw something on the altar, and do we have anything around here that we don't, that we could, that we don't really need right now? We'll just, we'll take that, and if it's flammable, we'll throw it up there and we'll burn that. No, no, God has laid out specific instructions and the, the, the offerings that people are bringing are things that are valuable. And listen, the things that are offered up to God, um, I've been struggling to find the right word for it. They're total. It's, it's comprehensive. You don't get it back. It, it, is, it is offered up to God and when it is offered up to God, it is it is completely and utterly God's and no longer yours. We're going to come back to those principles here in just a second. That Those principles of this is valuable and this is comprehensive. And the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so, in a way that is symbolic but meaningful, God carried out his wrath against the animal. It died in the place of the sinner, a life for a life. One commentator says this, this was in keeping with the strictest demands of God's justice. A life was given for a life. And like I've said earlier, it, it needs to, uh, if, if a life has to be given to, to save the life of a sinner, what does it say for the fact that the fire never went out? I mean, it was just, it was always burning. And as best we know, there was always a sacrifice on it. That, that means there's a lot of sin. But the fact that the fire never went out also means that God was always ready to receive sacrifice. Forgiveness is always available. And while we read in Leviticus ch chapter 17, verse 11, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, we also read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How does that work? In the Old Testament, I'm told that the blood of bulls and goats is what covers my sins. It is what atones for my sins. Kafar is the Hebrew word to cover. It almost sounds like the word cover. Right? The, this blood of these animals in some way covers my sins. What, what is it that saved Old Testament saints? Was it the fact that they brought an animal and slit its throat and the blood was spilled and it was offered up on the, the altar and now they thought, whew, good, I can go live however I want to now because I got the sacrifice, I got the, the thing on the altar taken care of. The Bible makes it clear both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that it is faith in a gracious God that saves. It was, it was faith 
Yeah, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Um, excuse me, no, that's, that's the wrong reference. I'm reading the wrong, reading the wrong one here. Um, in, uh, I didn't write it in my notes. Um, it was the faith, uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You are saved by grace through faith. Just like Old Testament saints were saved by grace, by the gracious kindness of God, through faith in that God. And that, that faith in God evidenced itself in obedient sacrifice offering. It wasn't the putting of the animal on the altar in and of itself that forgave the people of Israel. It was faith in God and in his ways and recognizing that in some way a life has to be given for a life. And while I don't understand all the mysteries of the Messiah who is to come, I understand that my obedience is to bring this animal and for its life to be shed to to spare my own. It leads us to point number two, a lamb for sacrifice. A lamb for sacrifice, and I'm just going to jump right to it. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. In the book of Revelation, we hear that our song forever will be to the lamb who was slain. Jesus himself will go to the cross to make atonement for sin. We'll talk about this more on, um, on, at our Good Friday service. This is Palm Sunday. We, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Christ's ride into Jerusalem. But as he rides into Jerusalem, he understands something that none of those with palm branches understand on that Sunday. Jesus understands that he is headed to a cross. Jesus understands that he is headed to an altar. He understands that his valuable life is going to be totally and completely consumed on this altar, a place where his blood will be shed, not quickly and in a sanitary way, but slowly in a horrific way. His life will be given The life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, His life will be given as the ultimate and final atonement for sin. Why does Jesus' life, why does Jesus' blood forgive you for sin, and not only you for sin, but everyone who will turn to Him in faith? Why 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 is it that it's not sufficient for a lamb to take for a lamb's life to take the place of, of your life. Well, a lamb isn't a human being. A lamb isn't a person. And the reason that a person, a human, a, a mere human, can't take the place of another human and for the sins of the whole world is because no individual human is, is eternal. Jesus Christ is both God and man, and that's what makes the sacrifice of his life and the shedding of his blood a sufficient sacrifice for all people of all time. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. That was only a copy of the true one. We read these verses last week. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. 
And Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a remarkable phrase, that last phrase of verse 26. To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you know what you need more than anything? You need your sin done away with. And you and I both know we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, we're not consistent enough to do away with our sin. I have enough sin from yesterday to send me to hell forever. I have enough sin from this morning to send me to hell forever. The thing that I need more than anything else in the world is to have my sins done away with. And Jesus came to do away with sin. Well, how did he do it? Was he like a judge who just said, you know what, I'm a really nice guy and you really want forgiveness and and since you said pretty please and I'm a nice guy, okay, I'll let you into heaven. That wouldn't be okay. Your, Your sin is still real and your sin has really been committed and someone has to pay for sin. Someone has to pay for every sin committed. Sin must be paid for. And brothers and sisters, when I say the main point this morning is that someone pays for every sin committed, that should either deeply encourage you or mortally terrify you. Because either you will pay for it or Christ has paid for it. Either you will pay for your sin or Christ has paid for your sins, but there are, there are no other options. There are no other options. It's not like you get to wrangle with the judge or you get to dicker with the judge a little bit and say, yeah, but listen, I was pretty good. you got to admit, I was pretty good most of the time. I had those few, we're not going to talk about those, few times, but I felt really badly about those and not very many people knew about that or no one knew about it, and mostly I've been good. No, no, you've sinned. One sin is enough, but you've committed more than one sin. And there's no other options. Sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. And that death is referring to eternal separation from God in hell. Not a very politically correct message these days, but a biblically faithful one. There's no other options. So you will either trust in your own good works or trust in yourself or trust in something or someone other than Jesus Christ, or you'll put your faith in him alone. And his blood that really was grotesquely shed on a cross 2,000, approximately 2,000 years ago, that shed blood is blood that was made in sacrifice for you. Those lambs and bulls and goats and all of the blood and all of the sprinkling on the horns and offering on the altar, all of that, all of that cannot forgive sin. It's just an illustration. And all of that illustration, you might think that that's a lot of illustrating. That's, you know, thousand plus years of illustrating like, how come you can't just kill one lamb and say that, that, that illustrate, but there's this, there's this, I mean, imagine how many animals this must have represented over the course of that thousand years or so. An enormous number of animals representing the enormous significance 
of our sin against God and the sacrifice necessary. And Jesus comes and once for all offers an eternal sacrifice. There is, there is no other there's no other option. So let me ask you, let me just give you a few quotations from some songs. I'm going to actually ask Paula to come up. We're going to actually, right, this is, well, I'm not done. We're going to sing right in the middle of my sermon. Are you washed in the blood? You know, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. So come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Three different songs from three different eras that all represent the same thing. Take your hymnals and turn to number 337. We're so familiar with these songs about blood, but imagine if you didn't understand Christianity and you walked in this morning and you didn't understand anything about Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made and you heard a bunch of people saying, what can wash away your sin? The question in and of itself might be confusing to you. And then everybody with joy and excitement sings nothing but the blood of Jesus. How many of you got dirty yesterday and thought, I need to clean up and so I'm just going to go find a vat of blood and get myself cleaned up here real quickly. That's not how you clean things. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Look in verse 3. Nothing can for sin atone. What if that was the end of that line? Nothing can for sin atone. All right, have a great day. There's nothing that can atone for your sin. You're a sinner. God is righteous. You have to go to hell. Hope you get to live a long life because it's, it's, this is the best as it's going to get and you only have judgment to wait. Well, no, nothing can ascend. Nothing, nothing with the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, listen, there, there is no other place where salvation is found. That's why it's so important for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone. You can stay seated. No, let's stand. Let's sing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We'll sing the first, the first, the third, and the fourth. What can... Okay, let's have fun with this for a second. So this side on verse 3, we'll sing that nothing can for sin atone, and then this side's going to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then you guys will sing not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay, ready? On verse 3.
us. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 12. You already know where I'm going with this, right? Romans chapter 12. Point number three, a life for sacrifice. Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice on the altar. Jesus fulfills all on his own. The altar which we now have is Christ alone, John Owen says, and his sacrifice. He was both priest, altar, and sacrifice, all in himself. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says this, I beseech you. I appeal to you. I, he's imploring. He's begging. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. I'm begging you. I'm beseeching you. By the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? The mercies of God is the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus giving himself on the altar. So Paul is saying, I'm begging you on the basis of what Christ has done for you on his sacrifice for you because he has put his life on the altar for you. Paul's going to use some really, really extreme language now. We're used to it, but this is extreme. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I want, I want you to live like you are a sacrifice. Now, he has to say living sacrifice because the only way that sacrifice makes sense is when a living thing is made dead. And if he wouldn't have said living sacrifice, Paul would be saying, um, based on the mercies of God, you be a sacrifice. And they would have all gasped in horror. Like, what do you mean? Like, is this some kind of cultic, you know, give my, my life in order to earn salvation? No, Paul says, but I, because of Christ gave his life for you in death, now you give your life for him in its living. Remember we said that the, the sheep, the animals that were sacrificed, they were valuable. And the, their, the, the, the offering, their sacrifice was comprehensive, total. It was, it was the entirety of the animal. You, you didn't loan it for a sacrifice and then get it back later. You gave the thing up entirely. And it was consumed by the fire. I don't think Paul is being mysterious. I think Paul is using a, an image that many of those people would have understood very clearly. Your life is valuable. Give it to God. Give all of it to God. 100% of you to God. Not an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Not a little bit of 10% of your money now and then. Everything you own, all of your time, every waking moment, every Every moment on the planter, every moment in the car, every moment in the classroom, every moment uh, in, in, the, in the dining room, like you, you are now living as a testimony to who God is. 
and how valuable he is. These sacrifices were a testimony. My faith is in the one to whom I'm giving this sacrifice. My life is going to be lived in such a way that people know I'm his. He's mine. So friends, give yourself totally as a living sacrifice to God. This altar that people would have walked in and seen animal after animal after animal killed in a way that would be really horrific to many of us in here. And Jesus comes and he offers himself one time as that final sacrifice and his shed blood, his life on the altar really does ultimately and finally forgive all who will turn to him in faith. And then he asks of us who do turn to him in faith, now give your life as a living sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, you're going to pay for your sin. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice, you'll pay for your sin. And you'll do it for eternity, separated from him. But if you will turn and put faith in Christ, then his sacrifice atones. It covers It's sufficient for you. It pays for you. God is good, but he's also just. He's not like the judge we've talked about. Sin will not go punished. Sin will be paid for. Believer, let me call you to once again live your life as a sacrifice. You bow your heads with me and close your eyes. We're actually, that was not our actual final concluding song. I'm going to have the music team come and they're going to actually sing a song that I think we've sung here before, but uh, we're going to sing a song that kind of prepares our hearts for Easter and we'll sing again on Easter. But as we begin preparing our hearts, because Good Friday comes before Resurrection Sunday, as we begin with with a looking toward our Good Friday service here together on Friday, Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ really was a human. He was God, but he was also human, and he really did give his life. He gave his blood. His blood was sacrificed. His life was sacrificed, and his blood was shed to make you right with God if you'll turn and put faith in him. Because nothing can atone for sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone for sin. Father, if there are those here who don't know Christ, I pray that today they would turn and trust in him. And for Lord, for All of us, I pray that we would live in such a way that uh, it would be obvious that our lives are living sacrifices for, for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.